Today's passage comes from Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, James. Forgot to turn my mic on. Some people say I don't need it, but uh, nevertheless. Good morning, Redemption. Good to see you all this morning. Um, if you're new, we're glad that you are here. Welcome. Uh, I'm, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church Arcadia, and uh, we're glad you're here, and thanks for joining us this Sunday morning. Uh, I will tell you, I, I uh, do a lot of public speaking. Um, I've been doing it for a long time. I teach public speaking uh, at Paradise Valley Community College and at Fuller Seminary, and uh, I've learned <clears throat> pretty much how to manage the anxiety that goes along with public speaking. And it doesn't rattle me, it doesn't bother me that much, but I will tell you it's interesting. In, in preparing for this passage, this is, a, this is a tricky and tough passage, and so there's a little bit of anxiousness here. And so let's pray together, and as I'm praying for you guys, would you just silently pray uh, for me? So, Lord God, we, uh, we know that Jesus told his disciples in John 15 and 16, that when he goes away, he's going to send the encourager, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. And we know that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, with your Holy Spirit. We know that your Spirit uh, guides us and influences us and brings us wisdom and convicts us of our sin. And so we just pray right now that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word, uh, that uh, we would recognize that although commentary is helpful and commentary is good, uh, really, your word is what's most important. Your word should be followed. Your word should be exalted because it always points us to your son, to Jesus, to the good news of who Christ is. So help us in that this morning as we tackle this very interesting passage. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, and we've talked about how the Sermon on the Mount is this cohesive unit that Jesus teaches Primarily, uh, we could say about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's, he's teaching a politic of the kingdom of God, which is going to be different than the politic of the world. And when we say politic, what we're talking about is how one lives as a citizen in a community. And so the kingdom of God has a different politic than, than the world. And so there's going to be a differentiation there. Uh, Paul, in most of his letters, really presses into this. In the New Testament, uh, when he talks about, when he gets sort of to the application part of his le letters, he's famous for saying things like, uh, only let your manner of living be worthy of your call in Jesus Christ. Or uh, let your walk, the way you live your life, be worthy of the gospel to which Jesus has called you. He says this in several of his letters. And so what he's saying, what Paul is saying is because of Christ and his truth 
and his messiahship, his salvation, and because God has called us unto that, uh, we then uh, are transformed by the work of the Spirit in our lives and by the resurrected Christ, and so we live in a different way. And that's what uh, Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. That's why Redemption Church, all ten congregations, decided to go through this section uh, very important section of scripture. But these five verses, I will tell you, they're very challenging to get right. And even when we get it right, there are going to be more questions afterwards. It's not like we can settle everything necessarily because there's nuance and, and there's context and we need to work on all that. But I will tell you, once we get it right or start to get it right, these verses are actually really helpful. Really, really helpful to us. And that's the exciting part of this. Uh, I, I want to go back to Cody's wife, Lauren, and her notion that a big part of discipling, which the Sermon on the Mount is a, a lot about discipling or teaching the follower of Christ, a big part of discipling also includes undiscipling or sort, sort of, uh, you know, uh, untangling all the bad teaching that maybe we've learned or lived our lives and, or understood uh, and, and so part of what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he's also untangling some of the, the bad notions or understandings or concepts or ideas that we have. And this passage is certainly uh, one of those passages where he's trying to untangle some of that bad doctrine. Jesus is discipling us in the Sermon on the Mount, but he also knows that that involves undiscipling us as well. So here's the big idea for today, these five verses. God's wisdom, discernment, and will are essential to live a life that honors Jesus, others, and self. God's wisdom, discernment, and will are essential if we're going to live a life that's going to honor God, honor others, and even honor ourselves. And I think we need to read this passage, reread it. James gave it to us, but I think we need to reread it again in context. So let's go back and, and read it in context of those first six verses in chapter 7 that we looked at last week. And, and kind of help us understand that, again, these aren't just separate little sermonettes that Jesus is going through, different topics, but that they're all interwoven together. So last week we looked at 7, 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, uh, use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying don't judge ultimately. He's saying you need to judge, you need to have discernment, you need to have wisdom, but the first thing you need to do is you need to make sure your heart is right. You need to clear out all of that junk in your eye before you start trying to clean somebody else's eye out. You need wisdom, discernment, and introspection in order to uh, execute this very difficult and challenging uh, ministry of helping confront others in their sin. And then he says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And people say, well, what has that got to do with anything? Here's what it has to do with, with what he just said. He said, when you do start to do this ministry of lovingly confronting other people who are headed down the wrong path and you're doing it out of love to help correct them, you are going to experience pushback. You're going to experience people telling you to take a hike. You're going to experience a culture that says, hey, don't judge me. Don't be judgmental. 
And so he says, if, if that's all you get from somebody, then understand that God's not working or whatever's going on in their life, move on and keep working at your ministry, but you're going to have to move on in this case, okay? And then he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be, to, to, to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good, good things to those who ask him? Okay, so let's dig in. So that transition, again, even from verse 6 to 7, uh, looks a little bit abrupt and out of place. But there, but there is a connection here. Jesus has not moved on from the message we discussed last week, the message of introspection, confession of our own sin, discernment, and then judgment. Uh, he, he's saying that in order to pray well, because he's, now he's talking about prayer, in order to pray well, in order to be prepared to live this life of discipleship, to live this kingdom politic that Jesus is calling uh, his followers to, you're going to need introspection, confession, and wisdom, just like when we judge. It's all related together. Uh, verses 7 through 11 are also not verses about what some people would call a blank check prayer or a get-what-you-want kind of prayer. Rather, Jesus has just talked about the need for humility and wisdom in the midst of judging sin, whether it's self-sin or the sin of others, and that's not so easy. We need to remember that's not very easy. This is no easy gig. We need help. We need God to lead and guide us. We can't just go out and try to do this under our own wisdom, under our own power. We need his wisdom. We need his discernment. We need God to be leading and guiding us. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us, and that, that is what Jesus is calling us to in prayer. He's saying, you need to submit your will in all things to the will of God, to the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing that we need to do. You know, Luke's version of this in the Gospel of Luke, he says, how much more will the Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? So you see the connection between the filling of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. The Holy Spirit is who gives us wisdom and discernment. So Paul says... In Ephesians chapter 5, it's verse 18, one of the most misunderstood verses there is. He says, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, what is it? Look at verse 18. You can see it up there. Do not be drunk on wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does he mean when he says that? Uh, again, I've said this before. I've literally had people say, well, I, I get drunk on vodka, so apparently I'm okay, Okay. <laughs> you're really missing the point here, okay? Uh, Paul, Paul is helping us to understand that a life lived under the influence of anything other than the Holy Spirit is, is a life lived in foolishness. Wine is a metaphor for anything that we might be influenced by, worshiping, uh, serving, anything like that. And they're not necessarily bad things. Wine is not a bad thing. 
If you drink three bottles of it in an hour, it can become a very bad thing, but it's you, not the wine, that's doing that, okay? We need to understand. We can't blame the wine. We need to blame your discernment. That's the problem. But it's not just about wine. Do you know anybody intoxicated by their status? Do you know anybody intoxicated by the power that they have? Do you know anybody intoxicated by wealth? Are, all, are these things bad things? No, they're not. They're not necessarily bad, but when we become intoxicated by them, when we worship them, when we serve them, when they become our false gods, when we are influenced by them, then we've got a problem. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. What is leading your life? What are you serving? What are you worshiping? And if you're worshiping, serving, and, and being influenced by something other than God, then Paul says very specifically you're leading a life of foolishness, a life void of wisdom. In fact, put that passage back up. Let's go ahead and, and look at it in, in more context there. Ephesians 5, 15 through 18. So I know, you're like, well, what happened to the Sermon on the Mount? This relates. This relates directly to what we're talking about here. Paul writes in verse 15, look carefully then at how you walk. Uh, that little phrase, that little idiom, how you walk, is, is, uh, is the way they would talk in, in first, the first century Mediterranean culture about how you live your life out. Look carefully at your politic, is what Paul is saying here. Not as unwise, but as wise. What is the synonym for unwise? It's foolish, and Paul's going to get to that in just a second. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. There, Paul is simply acknowledging and tipping his hat to the fact that we live in a fallen, corrupt, sinful world. Have you looked around lately at the world and said, what is wrong? Okay, it's called sin, and the Bible deals with that. that that's, we live in a corrupt, fallen world. What God created is very good, but we've managed to horse that up through our sin. So he says, make Good use of the time in this corrupt world. In other words, you need to be wise to be able to navigate your way through this very corrupt, very difficult uh, world. And then he says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here's what Paul is saying. Very simple. The wise person is the one who submits their will to God's will. The foolish person is the one who submits their will to anything other than God's will. That's what he's saying. And, and, and some of you, I'm not submitting my will to anything else. I'm my own person. You have submitted your will to yourself. And that is also a false god. And Paul is saying that is foolishness. We are to submit ourselves to God's will. That's what the wise person does. And then he says, and do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's his context for that. That's this metaphor where wine really means anything other than submitting your life uh, to God. And that's what verse 8 is about in Matthew chapter 7. That's what verse 8 is about. It, it relates directly. Verse 8 is about a posture in prayer of submitting to God's will, to God's wisdom, to God's understanding of the world. It is us praying with the right posture. Even Jesus, the night that he was tried unjustly, and then eventually crucified, even Jesus went to God, the Father, and he said, Father, this plan that we have laid out, is there another way we can do this? Is there a plan B? And then he said, but not my will, your will. So even Jesus, asking for what he wants, then presses into wisdom and says, whatever your will is, that's the one that I want to do. So these verses in Matthew are about prayer, yes, but they are about Prayers, not prayers, prayers 
who pray that we would live our lives in submissions to God, in submission to God's will, his wisdom, his discernment, and his understanding. Uh, the, the fear of the Lord is what starts us, is what is started with wisdom. That's, those things are interrelated. And we need this. We need this wise posture of submission to God's will when it comes to living a life as a true disciple of Jesus, one who desires genuine submission and transformation for self, for their community, for their church, and for their world. Here you go. I would even argue that we could get into the difference here between what's known as maintenance prayer and frontline prayer. And there's a big difference. Maintenance prayer, again, very important. We need to do maintenance prayer. We, we collect all the prayer requests and somebody's getting a knee replaced and somebody else is having trouble making their car payment and, and this person's having this problem. And we pray for those things. And, and I'm not discounting that at all. We have a, a, a team of deacons here that pray in that manner. We pray for those things, maintenance prayer. What often gets lost in the midst of the maintenance prayer, though, is the frontline prayer, which is, is incredibly important that we do. The frontline prayer is that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that people would submit their lives to God, that God, through his Holy Spirit, would come and change hearts, that, that we could have an election cycle that isn't the fiasco that it is this time, you know, those kinds of things, that that there would be more wisdom in this world rather than what we, we see, frontline prayer that is bigger than who we are, bigger than us, something where God seriously has to move in the midst of that. So in this passage, verses 7 through 11, one of the things I want to mention is we see a couple of threes, a couple of threes. Here's the first one. Ask, seek, and knock. Ask, seek, and knock. Now think about those words, ask, seek, and knock. This sounds an awful lot to me like somebody who is desperate. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to get across to us, that we are desperate. And by the way, notice that there's a reference later on in this little paragraph to the relationship between parents and children. I would say that ask, seek, and knock is also, in a sense, a relationship in, in relationship to parents uh, and children. Anybody ever been through that traumatic moment with their child where they disappear? They haven't been, you can't find them? You thought they were at somebody else's house? Or for Jackie and I, our oldest, Shelby, when she was three, we were at Barnes and Noble by Metro Center, and both of us just distracted for a moment and looked away. Boom! We can't find Shelby in that big store, okay? Do you think we were kind of walking around going, well, she'll show up. It's okay. No. You know what we did? We started asking every person in that store. We started seeking Shelby, and we were knocking on doors of the manager's office. We were desperate. Your kid supposedly goes to somebody's house, and you find out later that they never made it six hours later. What are you going to do? You're going to sit back? No, you're going to go out and ask. You're going to seek. You're going to knock on doors. You're desperate. That's what Jesus is getting across here. And I know, I know in America, most of us are like, yeah, well, but we're not really desperate. This kind of makes us sound like beggars. That's just, that's terribly undignified. Well, yeah, you know what? We are spiritual beggars. If we have a proper understanding 
of who God is and who we are. We should be spiritual beggars. We should be. We may measure up pretty well in the world when we compare ourselves to other people. All of us do that. It's called the social comparison process. We can always find somebody out there where we can go, I feel a lot better about myself now. We can all do that. Okay, and by the way, they're doing it to you too, so that's an interesting conversation right there. Well, what's the problem with that comparison? It's the wrong comparison. Who does God tell us to compare ourselves to? His holiness, his perfection. Paul says you are to imitate the life of Christ. Uh, How are we doing there? How's that comparison going for us? A little bit tougher comparison there. It's always easier to compare ourselves to others. We can always find somebody who makes us feel better, but when we start comparing ourselves to Jesus, here's what it makes us do, and this is a good thing. It makes us poor in spirit, which is exactly how Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand who they are because now they understand who God is and they will seek God. That's how important this is. We need to be spiritually bankrupt. We need to recognize that we're spiritually bankrupt. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, says that before Christ enters your life, you are children of wrath. There's that children metaphor again. You are children of wrath. You are children of God's judgment, condemnation, and wrath. That's who you are prior to coming to Christ. After coming to Christ, you are children of God. You are adopted as his sons and daughters, and you receive an inheritance that you begin living here on this earth, but you also have a claim to uh, in heaven, in the new Jerusalem. There's one or the other. You're a child of God or you're a child of wrath. That's the binary, and it's a true binary. We need an intervention. That's what we need if we don't know Jesus. We need an intervention. That's what we need. And it sounds to us like we might need to be beggars. We've got nothing and he's got everything. So ask, seek, and knock. The gospel, by definition, by definition, the gospel is for desperate people who understand what truly good news is. I can't do this. God already did it. Jesus said it's finished. I just press into that. That's really good news. That's the beautiful, awesome love of God who... Because of his character, loves us. Nothing worthy in us to generate that love, but because of his character, he loves us. Here's what we bring. Here's what we, you and I bring to the salvation table. We bring our sin. And God is taking care of that through Jesus Christ. Now the other three, three sorry, I went to ASU. I got to figure this out. Okay, there. Um, uh, now the other three that we see in this paragraph. Number one, humility. You have to start with humility, which is exactly what we talked about last week. Seems like humility is an important factor in this Sermon on the Mount thing. So humility, recognizing and acknowledging that he's God and we're not, understanding and accepting and even embracing the weakness that we have and the need to submit to something better. And by the way, he's better. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said, you know, I had this thorn in my flesh. What's the thorn? It doesn't matter. He's suffering because of it, Okay. Could be his eyes, could be his nose, could be Barnabas, it could be Mark, we don't know. Could be another person that's kind of a thorn in his flesh. And he says he prayed to God three times that God would remove it. And God said, nope, not going to remove it because it's good for you to have that thorn because you understand how weak you are, which then makes you press into my strength and my power. That's a good thing for you. Okay? We're going, no, no, he's suffering. We've got to eliminate the suffering. 
but it's reminding Paul, keeping him humble of who he is and that he needs to press into God. And that humility will always lead us to an awareness of our need. That's the second thing. A lot of talk today I've noticed about self-awareness. That has become kind of an interesting cultural conversation. A lot of essays on, you know, people need to be more self-aware, those kinds of things. Well, I'll tell you, there's nothing we can really do about our own self-awareness until we, we, we handle that big problem of self-awareness, the biggest one, which is that we need a Lord and Savior. Our greatest need is for Jesus. None of our other needs matter until we get that one right. So that's the, where we start with awareness, awareness of our need. The hard, this is what I found, and it's true for me too, the hardest thing for a human being to do, it seems to be, is to ask for help, is to ask for help when they're in trouble. We're embarrassed, we're filled with shame, we figure, uh, I got myself into this mess, I can get myself out of it, hmm. maybe not. Uh, we think we're strong enough, we think we're smart enough, we hate asking for help. The, the big lie that you and I believe is that we're okay on our own. Uh, there's a great movie, I can hardly go an entire sermon without mentioning a movie. There's a great movie, I think it came out in 1980, it's a, a Paul Newman movie called The Verdict. And anybody, just anybody seen that? It's, it's a magnificent movie of redemption and reversal and all those good things. But, but Paul Newman plays this broken down lawyer in Boston, and he's an alcoholic, and his career is just in the gutter. And he gets a case thrown his way that could really turn things around for him. Uh, the problem is, is that he keeps messing this, this case up because he's just he's in trouble. He's broken down. He, he hasn't got it anymore. He keeps messing this case up, but little things keep happening to give him some hope. And finally, he realizes there's a witness that everybody's overlooked. And the witness is living in New York City, and the witness is reluctant and doesn't want to come and testify. And so he has to go down there and find this witness and walk up to her. And even though he's a broken down alcoholic attorney, he still has his pride. He still has his arrogance. And that scene is just a perfect picture of how hard it is to ask for help. He finally had to go to this woman and humble himself and just literally look at her begging, will you help me? Will you please help me? That's the hardest thing that we can do, especially when it means coming to God, because then we have to acknowledge God for who he is. And that brings us to number three, perseverance. Perseverance is a trait that all of us want. We all want it desperately, but not very many of us understand what we have to go through in order to obtain perseverance. Perseverance is one of those things where, man, I sure hope at my funeral when those um, people get up to talk about me, to do tributes and remembrances at the memorial service, that they get up and they say, man, I'll tell you one thing about Frank. He never gave up. He persevered through thick and thin. That, those, that's one of the things that you want to be, you want your reputation to involve this perseverance. What we hate about perseverance it is, is that it's not a trait you can obtain without learning, without suffering, without experience in life. Without, in other words, without creating a history in your life. And it's, an, and it's a character trait that you can't obtain without learning how to push, thing, push through things when you really feel like not pushing anymore. It's really hard. We need to remember that there is, 
there is no internet download for Perseverance. You can't go to Perseverance.com, give them your MasterCard number, and suddenly have Perseverance. There isn't an app for your phone. Look at me, man. Don't mess with me. I got Perseverance right here, man. There is no such thing. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James says, Consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. That word trials is variously interpreted as challenges, suffering, temptation, and tribulation. So even when we're tempted by sin, that's a trial. Consider it all joy when you encounter these trials of various kinds. Why? Because the testing of your faith, there's the gospel component, there's Jesus. The testing of your faith over time will produce what? perseverance. It's the Greek word hupomene, and as Sean Meyer says, I hate to drop a Greek bomb on you, but it's an important word. That word hupomene literally means perseverance, endurance, steadfastness, and it means patience. All of those things and more. That's how you develop those things. They're not a spiritual gift, but they are a gift of God as you test your faith and go through life. You obtain these things. And by the way, James who wrote that, did you know that James who wrote that letter and wrote those words, had a, uh, had a nickname. Um, his knees were all gnarled and messed up. And the reason that his knees got all gnarled and messed up is because he used to spend hours on his knees in prayer. And so they called him Old Camel Knees. That was his nickname. And so let's talk a little bit about prayer. Now we understand the posture that we need. We need to be desperate. We need to be spiritual beggars, and that comes with humility, and that comes with an awareness of our need, and that comes with this idea of perseverance, okay? So now we understand the posture of prayer. Let's talk a little bit about prayer. First of all, let me just get this out of the way. I've read a lot of books on prayer. Some of you probably have too, and I will be the first to admit that the vast majority of books on prayer that I have read are pretty discouraging and frustrating. They really are. Um, I don't know what else these people who write these books about prayer have to do in their life, but apparently they don't have a job, they don't have a family. You read this book and you're like, well, I'm, 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 I, I have no hope. I could never even do a tenth of what that person does, okay? So I, I recognize that. It makes you feel guilty. It's probably not even realistic. You need to understand that. And here you go. When somebody makes you feel guilty and makes you feel something isn't realistic, how hard are you going to try to do it? That's one of the problems with those prayer. Now, here you go. I, I read books on prayer. There are some really good ones out there. I have Max Lucado's uh, Prayer Devotional, 365. It's wonderful. There are good prayer books out there, but I'm also very careful about how I read these books. Uh, you just got to make sure that you're not having some guy give you or woman give you a guilt trip in, in the midst of this. So let's just get that on the table right away, okay? Second of all, though, we need to also deal with this. It's the classic, well, God doesn't answer my prayer line, or he hasn't answered my prayer. Or every time I go to God with, with a need, uh, it, it, nothing happens, Okay? Well, what's really happening when you feel like God hasn't answered your prayer? Isn't it possible that he has answered your prayer? And the answer is no. Isn't that possible? Okay. There are three possible answers that God gives us when we pray. Yes, no, and wait. Sometimes it's just wait. Okay. 
Uh, you ever realize that when we complain that God hasn't given us the yes answer, maybe it's because in our limited understanding of life, we don't have all the information that he has? We ever thought about that? God has all this information. And, and here you go. For him to answer that prayer yes at that particular time would be the equivalent of giving us a stone or a serpent. Sometimes we're asking for a stone or a serpent and we don't even realize we are. So this is part of, again, a part of that submitting our, our will, our wisdom, our lives to God's wisdom. God has a complete view and understanding of what's going on. And listen, I want to tell you, I, I really get it. I, I get frustrated. I get really frustrated. I'm sure I know what I need. I'm positive I know what I need. And sometimes I'm pretty sure that God isn't listening. And then I remember he has all the backstories. He's the king of backstories. And sometimes he gives us what, what we didn't ask for because he knows the backstory. He knows what we really need. And parents, let me just hit the parents again. Okay? How often does your child ask you for something and you don't give it to them because you know better, right? See, we love that logic when we're parents. We love that logic. We get that logic. We're leaning into that logic. We agree with that logic. Amen to that logic. But then when we say, well, guess what? God is our father and we're his kids, and he has a lot more information than you do, suddenly we're like, no, I'm not so sure I agree with that logic. Okay, let's use it with your kids first. Give them everything they ask for from now on. How's that going to work? You see, we got to get this thing in perspective. We've got to give this, get this thing into perspective. The bottom line is that God cares for us way more than we think, and he really loves us when he says no or wait sometimes. And often he says no because he's protecting us from, guess what, ourselves. He's protecting us from us. And those times that he answers our prayer with something we never even expected, how about that? How about that? I found, and I've done this too, we, we sometimes pray kind of setting God up. Because we know he's busy. So we'll do all the groundwork for him. And then we'll go to him and we'll kind of go, all right, God, here's the situation. I've laid it out for you and I've really, I've really dug in and I've investigated. And here's what I think we should do. Here's option A. I really like option A. This just, just give me option A. We're good. I'll move on, okay? But I'll tell you what. I understand that option A may not be your option for me, so I've got this backup option. It's option B. So let's do that. I, I'm not as happy with that as I am with A, but A, B is, is acceptable. And then there's this C thing out here. I mean, if you're just really in a bad mood and you want to get me out of the way, I'll, I'll take C for now. And maybe we can look at A again in another year or something. But here's A, B, and C for it. And God comes along in his time and says, here's my answer. It's Q. You're like, where did this come from? And oh, by the way, it's a lot better than anything I conjured up. We, we got to remember that as well. What about prayers that contradict each other? How many of us actually go to prayer realizing that somebody may be praying the exact opposite prayer against, you know, kind of praying against us. We ever think about that? So here's a very good book on prayer, Jerry Sitzer's book, When God Doesn't Answer Your Prayer. Very, very helpful. He, he talks about in this book, he says, you know, Saturday has got to be the worst day for God. You know why? Because Saturday is the day 
when all the club sports are happening, so soccer, baseball, volleyball, that's when all these club tournaments for kids, you know, anywhere from 10 to 18 years old, every field is full, every gym is full, there's coaches, there's parents and all that stuff. And he says, what is God going to do when there's parents on each sideline praying that their, kid team, their kid's team wins and that their kid specifically is going to score the winning goal or the basket or the, the kid, whatever, their kid's going to be the hero? How many disappointed prayer warriors are there on Saturday? A lot. And I know it's cheesy, and I know it's another movie, but Bruce Almighty... When he answers every prayer, yes, what happens? Chaos. Truth, my brothers and sisters, I'm telling you. You can find God's truth even in, in movies, all right? It was, it was complete chaos when he answered every prayer, yes. So here's what Jesus is teaching. God gives, uh, what God gives us or what he does not give us is good. It's good. We may not realize it in the moment. We may not ever realize it until we get to the New Jerusalem, but what he gives us is good. In the metaphor that Jesus uses here, notice the good things that God gives us. He gives us bread and fish. What, what, are, what are those things represent? They represent provision. They represent sustenance. They represent strength. That's what those things represent. God gives us what we need when we need it, even if we don't agree with his provision and timing because he loves us. God does not deceive. He may discipline and train us, but he would never lie or manipulate us. And ultimately, what, here you go. Ultimately, what do we really need from God? Him. His presence. That's what we really need. Uh, I was told a couple weekends ago, of a, a seven-year-old who prays this prayer three or four times a day. Jesus, I just need more of you. Amen. That's right. She's got it right. Jesus is saying, you know, you got all your doctrine right, but I'll tell you what, I'll take the faith of these children any day of the week. You may be able to argue your pastor under the table, but the, ch the faith of children. I just need more of Jesus. We need him. We need his presence. We need his love and his grace. We need his wisdom, his mind. Paul says, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. What did Solomon ask for? In 1 Kings 3, God comes to Solomon, and he, he gave Solomon that one thing. You know, we've all talked about this before. If I had just one wish, what would I ask for? I'd ask for a thousand more wishes. That's what I would ask for. Don't blow this wish. He told Solomon he could have whatever he wanted. Well, I want a thousand wishes. God, did he say that? No. What did he pray for? Prayed for God's wisdom. Prayed for wisdom. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, by contrast, what's our only other choice? Satan. The evil one. The devil. Some of you right now. You believe in Satan? <laughs> yeah, I sure do. Don't you? Don't you? Well, I believe that Bible thing mostly, but no, some of that's a little crazy. No, it's either true or it isn't. Ephesians 6, Paul writes this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Here you go. The enemy is not the Democrats or the Republicans. The enemy is not the ACLU or Fox News. The enemy is Satan. We need to remember that. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan loves it when you don't believe in him because he doesn't have to mess with you at all. He loves, that's his primary goal is to get you to think he's not real. But he's got other schemes and tricks up his sleeve. Satan is clever. Satan is smart. He's really good at his craft. Here's one of Satan's favorite deals. This is from Tim Keller. The devil wishes to assure some people that there is no need for repentance and others that there is no hope for mercy. Satan is pro-choice on the way to the abortion clinic and pro-life on the way home. He will use any and every means to deceive you. He is the father of all lies and liars. Which line of Satan's are you prone to? His guilt or his license? Which one are you prone to? Or, like me, are you prone to both, depending on your mood and your season and, and your day? That's me. There are days when I have no idea how God could ever save me, how he could show me faith. I just, I'm like, I don't get it. And then there are days when I feel absolutely entitled to my sin, and you better just get out of my way. And let me tell you something. This isn't my fickleness. It's my flesh and Satan's cleverness. He, he is, Satan's a lot smarter than me. He just is. He's really clever, really crafty. Here you go. Satan almost always, almost always comes to us as a friend, as an advisor. You know what he comes to us as? He comes to us as a cruise director. That's what he comes to us as. There's no full frontal attack from Satan. That stuff you see in Hollywood and regarding that, that's, that's rare. What he, come, he, he sidles up beside us. He starts to lick our ears, starts to tell us exactly what we want to hear, starts to push hard into our feelings of entitlement and, 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 and our desires. He tells us our sin is going to be so wonderful and that God will never know and that God will never care about it. And then he uses that sin the minute we do it to start guilting us and shaming us and condemning us. That's how he works. That's what he does. But John tells us that he who is in me, the Holy, the Holy Spirit, the resurrected Christ, is greater than he who is in the world. And finally, you look at verse 11. It's the classic how much more argument that Jesus uses and was very common in his day. Paul uses this argument as well in his letters. He says, how much more is God going to take care of you? Parents, even in our selfishness and fallenness, we, we want what's best for our kids. In his perfection, then, how much more will God give us what we really need? Parents give out of love and fondness. And I know that for a fact. I have children myself. God gives out of love and fondness as well. But he also gives out of wisdom and insight. His fondness is never clouded by a romanticized 
fondness. We are true children, children of the perfect father. I want to close with a little story. It's, a, it's kind of a five-year prayer story that is filled with foolishness and wisdom. Um, when I came to work at Redemption Church five years ago, Tyler Johnson, our lead pastor over all ten congregations, when they offered me the job, said, we want you to take uh, Arcadia. Um, he said, here's your job description, typical lead pastor job description. And then he says, oh, by the way, there's one more thing. We need you to spend time looking for a permanent venue for Arcadia. Some of you maybe even don't even realize we, we leased our, our, our venue for the first seven years of our existence. We only moved into this property on, January, on July 10th. We were leasing it, and it was, it was um, not, the, not the best situation. It wasn't the worst situation, but not the best situation. And so he said, this is the other thing that you need to do in your job description. You need to find a permanent venue. Here you go. A permanent, affordable, big enough venue in Arcadia. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Okay. So maybe three and a half or four years ago, uh, I was sitting with the elders who at the time was Sean Johnson, Sean Mortensen, who's pastoring our Scottsdale church now, uh, and uh, Jack DeBardlo. We were sitting in an elders meeting. And we were talking about the fact we just found out that this is what our church is going to do in 2015, Redemption Arcadia, what we're going to do. Don't show the slides yet, uh, Darren. What, what we were going to do in 2015 was our church, Arcadia, was going to plant Peoria with Sean Myers. And then uh, about seven months later, we were going to plant South Scottsdale, Redemption South Scottsdale, with um, Sean Mortensen. And, and so we were thinking, okay, that's, that's a lot, but God is good. Uh, what are we going to do, though? And, and so we, we started drawing on the, the, the whiteboard, the dry erasable board. And here's the first thing we drew. By the way, this was done with computers. It was not, oh, there we go. This was done with computers. This is not my drawing. I, I can't draw a straight line like that, okay? So we drew this up. We said, this is essentially, this is Ar Arcadia, including Arcadia Light, Okay. So not necessarily Arcadia proper, but the general Arcadia area, Thomas, Camelback, 32nd, 64th. And that's where Redemption Arcadia was, Thomas and 42nd Street. Then we drew a line out to Peoria, February 2015. Then we drew a line out to Scottsdale. Okay, now hold on, hang on. Then we said, what if, what if somehow we were able to manage where God then planted Arcadia. In other words, we plant three churches out of our current church. We also replant Arcadia somewhere else. And, and we said, well, where would be just the ideal place? If money and, and land restrictions, there were absolutely no restrictions, nothing holding us back, we could be king for a day, where would we want to go? And here's the line. 32nd Street and Camelback. That's what we drew. And then we laughed, and literally, we were laughing hysterically. Nobody, not even God, could ever do that. And we kind of began to realize the futility of it all. And so what did we do? We started looking outside of the Arcadia area. We were looking up on Shea and Cactus. We were looking up there. And then Cody came on board. We hired Cody, and he became an elder. And, and we started looking at that church on the 51 that's for sale, just up near Shea. You've seen the, the signs up there. We started looking at that. We looked at it three times. Three times we looked at it. 
And I remember after the third time we came back and we were going, I don't know, is this going to work? Should we do this? And Cody, one of our elders, he said, guys, I have a suggestion. He says, <laughs> Justin Anderson, just on an off chance, came across this leased property that we had over at 42nd Street and Thomas. He walks out of his seminary class one day, sees the sign out there, goes over there, and the next thing you know, we've got Redemption Arcadia. He said, God moved in Justin's life in an incredible way that nobody would believe, okay? They weren't even leasing the sanctuary at that other church. They were leasing office space. Justin went over there and said, I don't want your office space. I want your sanctuary, okay? So Cody says, if God can do that for Justin, don't you think that he also has something for us here in Arcadia? And we were like, eh, okay. Let's quit looking outside of Arcadia and see what God does. And it was a year later that this guy walks by me on a Sunday morning, and I had heard this a hundred times. He said, I got a property that might work for you. And now here we are. Isn't it amazing? And look, look at some of these pictures. That's, that's our church now. And God did it in an affordable way. This, this land was worth arguably, conservatively, five million. We bought it for a million one because the church that was here before wanted the gospel to continue on this property. And then DeBartolo came in and talked, to, talked us into spending two million to renovate it, which we needed to do. But it's awesome. Isn't that, a, isn't that unbelievable? And I'm telling you, those were some four frustrating years for me. Praying, I mean, okay, God, don't you want this church to continue? And look at me, I'm a pastor. <laughs> some days I was so frustrated, so frustrated. It seems like sometimes with God we have to settle. But I want to tell you, God never settles, not for us and not for him. Paul says this, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Lord God, we are thankful for what you've done for us. And we can only just sit in awe as we receive your blessings. And we've got to reflect that back to you in your glory and point to your glory. And God, I thank you for elders and the wisdom of elders speaking into our lives, being guided by the Holy Spirit. Lord God, let us remember who is really in control. It's you. And aren't we glad? We pray this in Jesus' name.